I'm going to court on this. That simple. I don't need to face trolls. Here's the thing. Evidence. We have courts. You know what happens when you lie in a court? You know the maximum penalty in this country for perjury? It's about 20 years. Great. I'm going to be in court. Prove it in court. You get to send me to jail for 20 years. I get to put my evidence and other people get to put theirs. That's how real things work in the real world. Broadcasting from Brisbane, Australia, this is the FOMO Show. I'm Matt. And I'm Joe. And this is a fortnightly podcast where we talk about the exciting ideas changing the world today and what might change the world tomorrow. We'll help you stay across what's going on so you don't get the fear of missing out. You can find us at FOMO.show or by searching for the FOMO show on your platform of choice. And everything in the show is in the show notes. You can find links to stuff we're talking about, timestamps of the bits we're talking about, so you can always skip ahead or find it later. This episode, we're going to be covering a, a bunch of news. There's been all sorts of things happening because we've actually, we didn't actually do anything but the interview last yeah. episode. So, uh, so the real decision is what we cut out this week, but there's some really cool stuff. Mm. We're going to also um, talk about a cool tool, coin payments. Lots to talk about there. Uh, I say lots, not too much to talk about, but very exciting. And a really cool feature where we're just going to be reading out a piece that uh, was written by Gigi, who we mentioned last week in our interview with Alex Fetsky. Really cool episode. Let's take it away. So what have you been up to in the last uh, month or so, mate? Dude, I've been finishing uh, The Expanse, which you recommended that I listen to. I think it was on the show. Uh, it's a sci-fi show based in space in the a couple hundred years from now, and it's so cool. Like, visual effects are amazing. The storyline is awesome. You recommended it to me, and you said, yeah, you got to see this. And, dude, I finished the whole thing, and I've got to wait <laughs> until December for a new season to come out. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's been an agonizing wait because it, in, in the interim between the season that you've just finished and the new one, uh, the studio that was producing it, Sci-Fi, announced that they were cancelling it. Wow. There was all sorts of outcry. Um and uh, and then all sorts of social media stuff. Anyway, Amazon, like Jeff Bezos, swooped in and announced that not only is he picking it up, but he's throwing obscene amounts of money at it. Yes, Jeff. Um, yes. So, uh, <laughs> so it should be bigger and better in uh, in season four. And it would have been a travesty. Like it, everyone complains about Firefly being cancelled. Oh, was it like yeah. 15 or so years ago? Yeah. This would be another Firefly. Like if this show was cancelled. It's a cult it is, classic. That's what it's oh. going to be. Oh, my days. I freaking loved it. So if anyone wants to check it out, look check look up The Expanse. Um, amazing space-based future and they've just thought about so many cool things and so much fun mm, um, awesome. and apart from that i've been wondering if there's a recession underway i really think uh, i listened to a speech from mark carney um the governor of the bank of england mm. um and the way that he talked it was at jackson hole to a bunch of other central banking institutions it really makes me think that something is going on yeah, there's a, there's a lot of signals around, isn't there? If you like, because I've recently been reading um, some of the Dollar Vigilante stuff, mm. which I think you've been reading as well, and they follow some of the more macro trends, and they've you know reached a similar conclusion that things are really starting to kind of grind to a bit of a halt. 
Mm. What are they talking about, like replacing the US dollar with mm. an alternative currency? Now, the idea is that it could be the IMF's special drawing rights SDR currency. And they've been talking about digital currencies through central banks for a while, but dude, it's it's making me think something's going on. I've spoken to some architects recently. They said that for the last year, things have been dying out. So mm. I don't want, want to be a doom and gloom person, you know, whatever happens, happens, but I'm saving up some cash, so I got more cash to buy stocks, basically. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, what have you been up to, dude? I mean, yesterday, according to when we recorded, was Father's Day, and that's your first Father's Day. Congrats, man! Thanks, mate. Yeah, no, it was it was it was weird. Like it's one of those moments, you know. You've always your dad's always got his Father's Day, you know, and other people, but you never think it's going to be you, and then <gasps> all of a sudden it is. So, <laughs> yeah, man. that was interesting. Um, yeah, it's been a crazy last uh, few months, actually, mate. Like we've uh, we've just moved house and done a few other things, and. Just been a lot going on, so we've actually retreated up to the mountains for a week. So as we sit here recording, I'm uh, I'm outside because we've got a little cabin, <laughs> but the cabin uh, <laughs> it's it doesn't have room for a little for to set up a recording ad hoc recording studio. So yeah. I'm on the picnic table outside. I've run an extension cord out to the picnic table, brought all the recording gear. Um, it, it, <laughs> it, it, it would just look hilarious because like there's nothing around us. We're in the mountains. It's like cows mooing in the distance and. I can look up and see the stars and I've oh, got all this tech like laid out on the table in front of me and mate, it's, it's 21st century is nuts. Like we can, re- you can record a podcast, like we're on a voice chat channel right now talking to each other, recording a podcast and I'm, you know, in the middle of nowhere. So <laughs> <laughs> on holidays. <laughs> Dude, this is the yeah. length that we go to for our freaking awesome listeners so mm. thanks for joining us today if you love the show um do leave us a rating on itunes or whatever podcast app you listen on because that's awesome because it helps more people find us so thanks for listening we thought it might be time to check in on uh what we've been listening to or reading um in the last we do this once every few episodes just to keep a track of what we're doing we like sharing some of the cool things we've been reading uh, what have you been reading on your end Oh, so I've been reading a book called The Unpublished David Ogilvy. Now, he's one of the advertising industry greats. He ran this agency called Ogilvy and Mather, which is now called Ogilvy. Oh, well, there's still Ogilvy and Mather. But anyway, it was on running a business, working with clients, managing staff, enabling creativity and being an awesome leader. And it's a collection that his staff and his friends put together of some of his memos and little notes that he wrote to people on you know, really basic things like how to write or mm. how to you know, how to create a good office, you know, keeping it tidy, letting staff have fun. If staff having aren't having fun, then you're not going to produce great work, things like that. And it's just a bunch of his little speeches and papers, and it's just really small little nuggets of wisdom. And I've been reading that on my lunch break, so that's been awesome. And um, yeah, that's, that's really cool. And in addition to that, I've been listening to the Crypto Weekly Podcast, which is uh, a podcast produced from some of my English brethren. Um, they sit around once a week, have a few drinks and just have the most fun time. Um, they, I shared it with a mate today and he actually burst out laughing on the bus home when he was listening to it. It's that good. And I'm going to play you a little clip um, from episode 79, which is their most recent as of this recording. Just a little bit that they were talking about uh, some news about some Ukrainians who plugged in a nuclear facilities supercomputer onto the Bitcoin network to mine. And the way they talk, it's just so fun. 
Here it is. Now it's time to move on to some more exciting news, which is that some absolute mad lads in a nuclear power plant have been siphoning off some energy and mining cryptocurrency with it. They certainly have, Ken. We're over in the Ukraine. We are on the premises of a nuclear power plant that isn't even supposed to exist. What? Now, that is cool. It's a state secret, the location of this place. What? Yes. That is why the special intelligence service of the Ukraine arrested these however many lads it was, like three lads with a handful of ASICs in a in a nuclear power plant. This is... They were obviously viewing this... plugging directly into the enriched uranium. <laughs> yes, Ken. Um, yeah, so it doesn't sound like it was a massive operation. They've... Um, they listed the inventory that they seized within, like, a couple of sentences. It sounds like a handful of ASICs, like, the extension cables. They listed all kinds of stuff, but it doesn't seem like it was... Um, there was warehouses full of this stuff. It was apparently all contained within one office, and you'd also have to think they'd do this surreptitiously so they couldn't just fill the floor to ceiling full of ASICs. So it doesn't sound like a major operation in terms of scale, but the seriousness comes into play when anytime you're talking about anything to do with the nuclear power industry, obviously, because, you know, everyone's fallen for the radiation meme, so, like, people take this kind of stuff very, very seriously. (laughs) Not only that, Ken, but this isn't actually the first time we've seen this because earlier, I think it was early last year, and I'm pretty sure we covered this story as well, a couple of cheeky breekies over there in Russia did not only, did actually they did something far worse in their nuclear power plant because they they went full cheeky breeky and attempted to take the um, air-gapped supercomputer used to control the nuclear power facility <coughs> and link it to the internet Oof. to mine Legend. cryptocurrency. Wow. What could possibly go wrong? So, I mean, lads, as someone who's always looking for an edge himself, I get it. <laughs> like, there's a supercomputer right there and there's all these donks outside the wall with their ASICs and their ant miners that you're absolutely going to wreck. Believe you me, I get it. But come on. Did you not think that plugging a supercomputer that runs a nuclear power plant into the internet could have some adverse effects? Think about it, mate. If you get some of the ransomware, they ask for Bitcoin. Great point. Great Balances point. it out, baby. Yeah. Yeah. So um, next time they decide, anyone decides to do this, can you hit us up? Because we know how to run a mining operation that is isolated from the internet. In a completely legal fashion. Yes. In a video game, etc. Allegedly. <laughs> um, you don't need to plug a supercomputer into the internet for it to mine Bitcoin. Woo, lad. That is, that is breaking news. That's rather comfortable. That is a spicy one right there. It's almost like you know I feel what you're like, doing, P-Money. I feel like the Crypto Weekly inbox might be getting... <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely inundated yeah. with a lot of emails in Russian. Yeah. Once again, Bitcoin proving that it's a net negative for the world. Poor Ukrainian boys cannot help but use what facilities they have available to them to mine crypto. These guys are just so great. So if you like that little nugget, do subscribe. These guys are awesome. So shout out to them. Amazing. Anyway, what have you been reading and, and, and listening to? Well, I mean, now I need to go back and listen to Crypto Weekly because I think I've actually listened to that podcast a couple of times way back in the day. But yeah. 
Yeah. Just a bunch of British dudes having a good time. Yeah. So I need to, I need to go back and listen to that. But I've um so I've been uh, reading a book called The Innovators, which is um oh geez, I've forgotten the name of the author now. But anyway, it's about all the different tech innovators throughout history. So it starts with Ada Lovelace, like yeah. back uh, way back in the day when she built the first programming language, kind of comes yeah. through the timeline to Alan Turing. Oh, this is written by he's. Walter Isaacson. That's the one. He wrote, yep, yep. Um, he wrote Steve, Steve Jobs' auto, uh, Steve Jobs' biography. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is really, really good. Like it's, it's, you know, like a lot of it. Some of it you'll, you'll feel like you already know, uh, but a lot of it you won't. And he just has a way of kind of. Tying these threads throughout the whole book, which is awesome. So yeah, and I've been um, I've been been reading uh, reading that. Uh, that's uh, been really really good. Can yeah. definitely recommend it, even just to get inspired and you mm. know, and also just for a bit of history on, like the, because the, the computer and tech revolution, or I hate to call it a revolution, but the the evolution of computers and tech started a lot earlier than we typically think of. Mm. Like we kind of think of well, even before the movie on Turing, like a lot of people didn't even know about Turing, but. The stuff that people were doing, like back in the eighteen hundreds, yeah, and then the early nineteen hundreds, was crazy. You know, like um, all sorts of things with vacuum tubes and um, all other, all other sorts of bits and bobs, and yeah, like as is with a lot of different technological innovations, it kind of started slow. A few people took it up, gradually got rolling, and more and more happened, and then all of a sudden it just exploded. Mm. You know, and all these people just mm. jumped on the scenes, but um. Yeah, it must have been really frustrating for them because they, he, he talks about how some of them could kind of see where things were going to be, mm-hmm. but there were just those inherent limitations in what they could achieve in their time wow. um, with the tools that they had. Mm. And uh, yeah, so yeah, really, really interesting book. Um, uh, what else have I been? So I've been uh, reading, also reading a little LinkedIn book about uh, about how LinkedIn works and all the different bits and bobs in there because I spent a fair bit of time on there. Um, and I've been reading an article called by De, uh, by Gigi. Uh, now Gigi is someone who Alex referred to him in the in the interview last week. Yeah, and uh, said that he had his uh, twenty one twenty one lessons. Yeah, yeah, which is which is awesome, and we'll link that in the show too. Um, it's kind of an exploration of the many uh, consequences and just like extrapolations from the what what Bitcoin's done and what it can mean for humanity. So it's 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 really cool. Uh, but he also wrote an article just recently on what he calls the sovereign man, um, yeah. and it just it just blew me away. Like it was just a really really good, um, not too long article about you know, kind of the age we're heading into and what what we as a species need to be very careful that we need to prioritize. And yeah, we'll um we'll, we'll be talking about that in the feature, so we'll probably chat about that a bit yeah. more. But, uh, yeah. yeah, shout out to Gigi because he's putting out some awesome stuff. Quick disclosure, this podcast is not investment or any other type of advice. Yeah, we're not saying you should buy anything at all. So full disclosure, we're both personally invested in different shares, funds, cryptocurrencies, some of which we talk about on the show. Uh, But if we talk about an investment product, it doesn't mean you should buy it. So do your own research, never invest more than you can afford to lose, and most of all, avoid the fear of missing out. If you're new to cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, blockchain tech, you can check out our blockchain basic series which covers the fundamentals uh it starts from episode two way back in the in the fomo vault and continues on until episode eight are you certain you're private and safe online check out our new resource at fomo.show slash privacy it's a great repository of our favorite tools to understand and improve your online security so getting anti-malware getting a vpn checking to see if you've 
your data's been breached or leaked, setting good passwords, backing your stuff up, all that stuff, check it out, FOMO.show slash privacy. We're going to keep updating that page, and that's our go-to resource. So check it out, FOMO.show slash privacy. Uh, let's get into the news. So first bit of news, Bitcoin bank accounts are launching in 31 European countries. Yeah, so coming out of the dailyhodl.com, residents of Europe can now use their smartphones to open a German bank account with an integrated Bitcoin wallet thanks to a new app from the German blockchain company Bitwalla. Now, Bitwalla announced the rollout on the Thursday, saying customers in all 31 countries of the European economic area can access the benefits of a German bank account with the ability to buy and sell Bitcoin directly baked in. They charge a 1% fee on trading, but they offer their accounts and debit cards for free. So lost cards can be directly cancelled on the app, according to the company. How cool is that? That's really cool, mate. Like when when so many other um, banks are kind of fighting against it and blacklisting different crypto businesses, it's really cool to see one just coming out and basically saying, let's just embrace it. And if you come to me in April of 2019 and said, look, this is going to happen, I would have said, no, that's crazy. (laughs) <laughs> even all last year, it just seemed quiet, but this is exciting. The next piece is even more exciting. Yeah, so the Coinbase CEO has said that institutions are depositing 200 to $400 million into crypto per week. So this came from a tweet from Brian Armstrong, who's the co-founder and CEO at Coinbase. Um, and, and he said, look, whether institutions were going to adopt crypto or not was an open question about 12 months ago. I think it's safe to say we now know the answer. We're seeing 200 to $400 million a week in new crypto p- deposits come from institutional customers. Mm, and that came on the back of them purchasing the international operations of storage giant Zappo. So Coinbase are really starting to flex their muscles with all that uh, institutional money that's flowing in. And look, it, it, it's really interesting because we're, we're, we're starting to see this real interaction between the institutional world and crypto and and even the banking sector. I mean, Libra was kind of the first piece of that puzzle, but um, that's kind of, I feel like that's opened up a whole can of worms. Like Facebook have almost really given it some legitimization. And uh, between that and, you know, just the increasing knowledge of Bitcoin around the traps, Mm. uh, the increasing dialogue, and maybe even some of the economic factors that are going on in other markets as well, Uh, There's just a lot of appetite out there for crypto at the moment. And if you think that's big for institutional, check out this next piece. Customers can deposit Bitcoin to Bucked's warehouse starting next week. Yeah, so Bucked are going to open its warehouse to customers' Bitcoin on September 6th in anticipation anticipation of its impending futures contract offerings uh, they announced on Wednesday. So, yeah, they put that out in a tweet. But, yeah, the Intercontinental Exchange backed Bitcoin futures provider said that it would begin offering customers secure storage for Bitcoin, quote-unquote, to prepare for the launch of its daily and monthly futures contracts on September the 23rd. Now, let's give a bit of a background to who backed are because that'll tell you how big this is. Yeah, so Back's parent company is the Intercontinental Exchange Group, which owns a number of exchanges, including the New York Stock Exchange. Now, their revenue for 2018 was $6.28 billion, and their operating income, meaning the amount, the amount they made, $2.58 billion, and the net income was $2 billion. So these guys made $2 billion last year. But the, the big thing with this group is that they've currently got $92.7 billion worth of assets under management. The parent company of Back's this intercontinental exchange group, 
they run the New York Stock Exchange and a bunch of other exchanges. And BACT's investors include Microsoft Ventures, Galaxy Digital, which I think is run by Mike Novogratz, mm. and the Boston Consulting Group, a famous management consulting company. So this is what people mean when they say institutional is these guys. And they've said in this tweet, yep, September the 6th, they're going to start offering secure storage of customer Bitcoin. So this is like, this is what they mean by institutional. The New York Stock Exchange is as institutional as you can get, right? Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who would have thought, like, two years ago, you know, Bitcoin was still very much uh, pretty niche. Like, all the new people that were kind of piling in were basically coming in off just the price movement. So, they were all consumers. But now we've seen just a, a huge move, I guess. Like, we, we really can say that the institutions – are genuinely in this space now. Now, whether that's for good or for worse, you know, we don't know yet. But um, if it even just brings, you know, another 10%, another 20% of people to the space to discover Bitcoin, discover crypto, and then kind of go on that journey, like the journey that Gigi talks about in that 21 lessons, mm-hmm. that's great. Like that's, that's what we want. So mm. um, really, really cool to see. Next piece of news, you've probably already heard it. Uh, a judge has confirmed a ruling that Craig Wright is to forfeit 50% of his Bitcoin holdings for Bitcoin that he allegedly mined prior to 2014. Yeah, so there's no real knowledge from this as to whether he actually holds the Bitcoin that he's been uh, ordered to forfeit. But because he said he held them, the court has essentially taken him at his word on that fact and said well, you know, you need to forfeit them. The reason he's forfeiting it is essentially because um, he there's a, there's a, a guy called Ira Kleinman and uh, they allegedly mined their Bitcoin together prior to 2014. Sorry, who is Craig Wright, just for people who don't know? So Craig Wright is a, um, I hate to say it, but he's an Australian. Uh, he's Australian. <laughs> Brutal. <laughs> um, <laughs> he's also the self-proclaimed inventor of Bitcoin. So Bitcoin was invented by someone called Satoshi Nakamoto, which was a pseudonym. None of us really know uh, who he was. And he kind of stuck around for a while on forums, kind of got the project going, wrote the white paper, and then faded into obscurity. So where Um, does Kleinman come into this? So Kleinman uh, and Wright as well were involved in Bitcoin pretty early on. Mm. Um, And when Bitcoin was in its early days, there was all this Bitcoin to mine. So all the guys who got into it really early, and another one was Hal Finney, and there were all sorts of other very uh, early adopters. They got in and they mined a whole bunch of Bitcoin back when you could mine like, oh look, I, there were, I think there were it was dozens like, and dozens of Bitcoin. There used to be Bitcoin. fifty Bitcoin per block. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it was something crazy. So they were, they essentially got together and and mined a whole bunch of Bitcoin allegedly. Um, now uh, Kleinman was just another guy in the space. Um, and him and Craig Wright essentially teamed up from from what we've been able to piece together. And Wright since said that he holds um, he holds a whole bunch of Bitcoin from this mining operation in what's called the Tulip Trust. Uh, it's like a trust where all these Bitcoins are sitting somewhere safe. And his estate, so Ira Kleinman died, and essentially his estate saw those statements, realized that, well, if you did it together with, um, with our dad or our granddad or whoever it was. Oh, the brother of um, brother, yeah. Kleinman. Yeah, so if you two mine that together, then 50% of that it belongs to the Kleinman estate. Mm-hmm. Now, there was a lot of drama in the court case. You probably already heard about it if you're listening, but if not, do have a little search on Craig Wright and Dave Kleinman. Uh, you can find the background about it, but essentially the brother is saying, look, you guys did this together. 
let's uh, give me 50% because 50% belong to my brother and I'm his, like, I inherit off him or whatever it was. Mm. Um, so they sued for half the Bitcoin holdings in this trust, alleging that Craig Wright defrauded the family's estate. Uh, the court recently found that Craig Wright had argued in bad faith, had perjured himself and admitted false evidence during the motion. So we don't really need to say too much more. Um, yeah, Craig Wright's words probably say it best as we put in the intro clip. <laughs> yeah, so but if you are interested, go read the court uh, court case because there's some um, uh, there's some great moments. Mm. There's some mm. great moments. Next piece of news: four of five Bitcoin QR code generators are complete scams. <laughs> yeah, so this one comes from a report from Zengo, and they said that four out of the top five QR code generators listed on Google's front page are actually controlled by scammers. Now, for those of you that don't know, the, the Bitcoin addresses that you can send money to are actually really clever. You can um, you can put them in all sorts of different forms that people can copy and send money to you. And one of the ways you can put you can do that is by essentially generating an address that also spits out a QR code um, on straight there on, on websites. When a user tries to create a QR code for their Bitcoin address on these malicious websites, these websites generate a QR code for the scammer's own wallet. So at least $20,000 can be linked to the malicious addresses, likely a fraction of the total amount stolen over the years. And I had no idea of this. I mean, you think that we, I think we have this inbuilt um, perception that anything on the top, the front page of Google uh, that's kind of high up is probably going to be legitimate. Mm, mm. But that doesn't seem to be the case. But that's only maybe because it's easy to use and lots of people link to it. And that mm. doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best. So, mm. yeah, crazy stuff. So be careful out there. Yeah. Next bit of news. Uh, Portugal's tax authority has said that crypto trading and payments are tax-free. Yeah, so the European country's tax authority recently clarified that. So local business newspaper, uh, Journal de Negocios, I don't know how to speak Portuguese, they reported the news earlier this week saying that the authority has said that both cryptocurrency trading in real currencies and remuneration in cryptocurrencies are exempt from value-added tax. The agency also reportedly provided clarification to a local cryptocurrency mining company in an official ruling document. Now, the big thing to say too is that there's no income tax on cryptocurrency earning countries per that report as well, which means... That if you wanted to move to Portugal, uh, you could get your pay in uh, in Bitcoin or any other kind of crypto, and you wouldn't have to pay any kind of income tax as long as you're a tax resident in Portugal. Yeah, and you just lose it all when you generate a QR code. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, there's your tax. Dude, this next piece of news is so cool. Now, it's not Bitcoin related, but this is super awesome for cinematography. So Unreal Engine's Project Spotlight uses LED walls for real-time in-camera visual effects. Yeah, so this has come out of Epic Games, uh, and they've showcased what they're calling Project Spotlight, which is an Unreal Engine-powered way to capture real-time visual effects in camera. Now, the company's detailed the work in a new video which shows off the system, and that includes the ability to track the camera's position in space in real time for a realistic and customizable background. Now, I'd say don't don't 
listen to us, check out the video. Um, the link's in the show notes. So instead of filming in front of a blue screen or a green screen that you'll see in a lot of these sci-fi or whatever movies, the Project Spotlight system basically enables filmmakers to shoot their video in front of an LED wall. Now, the camera has like 3D space stuff attached to it. So the LED wall updates the background according to the position of the camera. So creators can digitally manipulate their 3D virtual scene whenever necessary in real time or whatever and the LED walls adjust instantly for realistic background stuff. So in this example, they have a motorbike sitting on like a pile of sand, but the LED wall behind has some like rocks and backgrounds and you could change it to mountains, you could change it to a space scene, you could change it to whatever and the actor can see where they're supposed to be acting. Mm. The camera knows exactly what's in the background and it all moves around in 3D. It's so cool. Yeah, So, and, and to take it from the people that have kind of been trialling this, they've said that uh, because the virtual environment can be adjusted in real time, it saves critical time that might, other be, might otherwise be wasted waiting for changes, but also people from different departments can work together to, to determine how the virtual world is portrayed. And that's a massive thing in a lot of these CGI movies because you've got actors essentially trying to picture something in their head. They don't really have a, a real good idea of what's going on. You've got all these different departments. like, and, and you think about it. Like at the end of a movie, you watch those credits roll. Some movies it rolls like 10 minutes, you know, and it's like it's still going pretty quick. These projects are huge. And so – You've got all these different departments with all the different parts, but everything comes together at filming. You know, that's that's kind of where where you need most of the attention. And this actually gives them a way to essentially say, okay, now we're doing this and up, it, you know, it shows up. And then another department mm. can say, oh, actually, I think we need to tweak this for this reason. And it can all be done there essentially while the actors are still there too. And this is really cool because it actually means that the 3D stuff is going to be done before the movie is shot. Mm. So, for example, if you're shooting the next Star Wars film, the actor doesn't need to imagine. God help you. They just <laughs> the actor just looks at the LED screen behind them, and it's already there. And so the directors can just sort of everyone can just know exactly where they're supposed to be, and you don't have to imagine it. You're there. Wow, and that's just the beginning. I I can imagine that it's probably going to start with one LED screen, but it's pretty soon going to be a a sphere of LED screens and everyone's going to be, wow. you know, basically feel yeah. like they're in the environment. And mm. Yeah. Oh. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Next bit of news. Um, websites have been quietly hacking iPhones for years, according to Google. So thank you so much, Pav, for dropping this into our chat. Big shout out to you. Thanks for jumping in our Telegram and sending us comments. We absolutely love you to bits. Yeah, Pav's, Pav's awesome. He's always putting really cool stuff in a Telegram. Yeah, so check out the stuff that he has to say. But yeah, he shared this piece um, saying that websites delivered iOS malware to thousands of visitors, probably tens of thousands, um, in the biggest iPhone hack ever. They call it a hack on this website. There's no telling who was infected or who was behind it. This is the largest ever known hack against iPhone users. Uh, it lasted at least two years and hit potentially thousands of people, according to research which has been published by Google. The malware could ransack the entire iPhone to steal passwords, encrypted messages, location, contacts, and other extremely sensitive information. This was then sent to a command and control server, which the hackers used to run the operation. 
Now, the scope, execution, and persistence of the unprecedented hacking campaign points to a potential nation-backed operation, but the identity of both the hackers and their targets is still unknown. And the data that was taken is the quote-unquote juicy data, according to Jonathan Levin, who's an author of three books on the internals of Apple's operating systems. Yeah, so he said, take all the passwords from the keychain, location data, chats, contacts, etc., and build a shadow network of connections of all your victims. Surely by six degrees of separation, you'll find some very interesting targets there. And it actually is a big deal because a lot of people have this kind of impression that Apple products are infallible, that they don't get viruses on them, that they're completely secure, um, which really doesn't stack up in in, in today's day and age uh, because that whole impression essentially came from a time when there weren't that many Apple devices around and Apple devices mm. were very locked down. Now, Apple, to their credit, patched the bugs quickly in February 2019 when they were alerted to it. So everyone who update, who are, who's updated their iPhone since is protected. But, you know, they just need to just reboot their phone and uh, it would wipe the malware. But the data had already been taken, a.k.a. passwords, contacts, all this critical stuff. Now, mm. Pav in our Telegram chat said, look, this is a reason why we probably shouldn't have or trust mobile crypto wallets. And that's a very good comment, Pav. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, I, I, and I agree. I think you, you probably only ever want to hold um, like spare change on your mobile crypto wallets. You never want to hold a big amount on there. Because, I mean, look, iPhones are still probably more secure than most Android phones. Um, but both have some serious problems. You're getting all sorts of apps with all sorts of permissions to all sorts of things. And they have a lot of access. Um so, yeah, I, I definitely wouldn't be holding big amounts on there. Mm. Get a ledger. Yeah, yeah, a hardware wallet or yeah. just paper wallet. Stick to those. I told you I got a, I, I got a, um, got myself a ledger recently, didn't I? No, you didn't. Wow. Oh, yeah, you know, I just, uh, so I kind of thought it was time. It was, I've been storing things on different software wallets, kind of air gapped and all sorts mm-hmm. of stuff. And I was like, nah, it's, uh, I'd just been stingy. I was like, oh, I don't need a hardware wallet, but I thought it's probably time I get one. So, yeah, got the ledger. Um, Man, it works really well. It's awesome. Mm. I'm really, really impressed with it. Which which ledger did you get? Just the lower model one. The I think it's the is it the S? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Nano S. Yeah, yeah. Which is fine, man. It works really well. Um, complete support on Linux, which is great. It just just cool. plug and play. So yeah, very impressed. Awesome. A purchase that was definitely worth it, considering you know that what we are holding now is you know can be considerably more valuable now than it used to be. Mm. Silicon Valley is building a Chinese-style social credit system. So in China, scoring citizens' behaviour is official government policy. Now, the US companies are increasingly doing something similar, uh, kind of outside the law. So have you heard about China's social credit system? It's a technology-enabled, surveillance-based nationwide program designed to nudge citizens towards better behaviour. Now, the ultimate goal is to allow the trustworthy, quote-unquote, to roam everywhere under heaven while making it hard for the discredited to take a single step, according to the Chinese government. Yeah, which is just, I mean, that's crazy talk coming from a government. But anyway, moving on. Um, At present, some of the parts of the social credit system are enforced nationwide and others are a lot more local and limited as they kind of beta test them. They're trying to work out what works and what doesn't. Now, Beijing maintains two nationwide lists called the blacklist and the red list. Now, red has a different connotation in China. Um, Blacklist consists of people who have transgressed and the red list is people who've stayed out of trouble 
Um, so that's their equivalent of a whitelist, I guess. And they're publicly searchable on a government website called China Credit, which we'll link in the show notes. So the Chinese government also shares lists with technology platforms. So for example, if someone criticizes the government on Weibo, uh, the kids might be ineligible for acceptance to an elite school. And uh, public shaming is also part of China's social credit system. So they can put pictures of blacklisted people in uh, in a city and they actually did that recently. They showed uh, blacklisted people in one city between videos on TikTok in a trial and the addresses of blacklisted citizens were shown on a map in WeChat. It's terrifying. So I, I, I'm pretty sure we talked about an article more recently about you could actually see who – which debtors were around you in real time. Mm. Mm. Crazy. And there's been like a lot of issues too with like people being mislabeled by the algorithm and then their faces and addresses go up on these things. Mm. And it turns out that you know they were actually good citizens, but <laughs> there was an error. So to us in the free, wonderful <laughs> world, this would never happen here because we have democracy and all kinds of wonderful things, but it's happening here too. No. But we've got democracy, Joe. Let's start with insurance. So the New York State Department of Financial Services announced earlier this year that life insurance companies can base their premiums on what they find in your social media posts. You know, that Instagram pic showing you teasing a grizzly bear at Yellowstone with a martini in one hand, a bucket of cheese fries in the others and a cigarette in your mouth. That could cost you, according to Fast Company. Well, on the other hand, a Facebook post showing you doing yoga or working out at the gym or getting swole um, or, you know, eating <laughs> vegan food, <laughs> that might save you some money. Yeah. I mean, look at the next one, patron scan. So when customers arrive at a patron scan using bar, they scan your ID and the company maintains a list of objectionable customers, which is designed to protect these venues from people who were previously removed for fighting, sexual assault, drugs, theft, and other bad behavior. Now, a public list is shared amongst all patron scan customers. So someone who's banned by one bar in the US is potentially banned by all of the bars in the US, the UK, and Canada. Uh, notably, patron scan Australia keeps a separate system. Yeah, and look, it even extends to Uber and Airbnb. So Airbnb can disable your account for life for any reason it chooses, and it reserves the right not to tell you that reason. Uh, the company's canned messages includes the assertion that this decision is irreversible and will affect any duplicated or future accounts. Please understand that we're not obligated to provide an explanation for the action taken against your account. So that ban can be based on something that the host privately tells Airbnb about something that they believe that you did while staying in their property and you have no recourse. Mm. And their competitors have similar policies. Yeah, so it's easy to get banned by Uber as well. When you get out of the car after an Uber ride, the app invites you to rate the driver. What many passengers don't know, though, is that the driver also gets an invitation to rate you. Under a new policy announced in May, if your average rating is significantly below average, Uber will ban you from their service. And you can even be banned from WhatsApp too if too many other users block you. So Fast Company finished in their article. They said if current trends hold, it's possible that in the future a majority of misdemeanors and even some felonies will be punished not by Washington but by Silicon Valley. And it's a slippery slope away from democracy towards corporatocracy, they say. In other words, in the future, law enforcement may be determined less by the constitution and legal code and more by end-user license agreements. 
Mm. It raises so many interesting questions, man. I mean, looking at the even the one with insurance and social media, like I, I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, well, you know, the, the easiest w- thing to do in response to that is to game the system and just make sure that you're putting up a whole bunch of, you know, photos of you getting fit, you getting healthy, you doing yeah. great things, knowing that it will bring your insurance premium down. <laughs> um, and, you know, similar with other things. But, yeah, it, it is this it is this constant feeling of being watched. You know, like we used to think that um, <clears throat> the only person that we had to fear watching us was the government, but now we have to fear the government and the corporates. And a lot of the time it turns out, like what's happening in, happening in China, that – the information is flowing both ways, you know, and 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 they're working very much together. And uh, you know, you, you can definitely see where people start talking about things like technocracies, and you know, those two are essentially becoming one and the same. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, it's it's happening right there in China. Yeah. So we're the Farmer Show. You know, we hate all governments, regardless of who they are. So we're equal opportunities governments here, but it's scary because. What's happening in China is terrifying. And what's happening here is it's less terrifying, but it's still pretty scary. So we figured mm. we'd share that because we love you all. Very much. Dude, this is a really cool tool. Talk to me about it. Coin payments. Coinpayments.net. Now, they are a payment provider and they allow you to accept. If you're a merchant and you want to sell stuff online, you can accept over 1,530 different cryptocurrencies at only a 0.5% fee. Yeah, and there's a couple of websites that I know I've, I've paid them on and they use this. And there's been a bunch of really, really positive um, feedback that I've heard from it. Now, I haven't had any personal experience but with the product itself, but... There's a lot of different features that they've got uh, kind of packed into this crypto payments product. Yeah, so they describe themselves as an integrated payment gateway for cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin and Litecoin, along with 1,528 others. Now, they have a shopping cart plugin. So if you run a website and you want to sell stuff online like T-shirts or whatever you want to sell online, you usually have a shopping cart system on your website. Uh, you know, that could be WooCommerce, that could be Magento, it could be OpenCart, Shopify, or a bunch of other tools. And this plugs into all of them. So if you're selling stuff online, you can accept cryptocurrency with zero extra effort. How cool is that? Mm, yeah, it's awesome. Because, I mean, I remember I looked at trying to integrate something in a website, geez, a year or two ago now, and it, there wasn't that many great options around. And I wish I'd found this because it just... From what it seems, it seems like it just works and uh, it just integrates with everything that you'd like it to integrate, particularly WooCommerce, which is what a lot of people are using. So they support GAP 600 instant confirmation. So Bitcoin payments that are really fast. They support uh, mobile apps. So you can, uh, people who run these shops can have a mobile app and just get paid to that. The people who have these shops can also get paid in their regular currency. Uh, They can automatically convert into you know the cryptocurrencies that they want there's a point of sale system apparently that they have and mm. they have a multi-coin wallet for the people the merchants so that you can just look if you're selling stuff online you can accept crypto it's super easy it's super cheap through coin payments and this is freaking awesome yeah it's so cool so um like we said we don't have any personal experience with the product itself uh running it from the merchant end but 
if you if it's something you're looking at, please just give it a crack. Let us know what you think because um, I, it was really cool to stumble across this and see just you know just how fleshed out this product is. And yeah, if we're going to do this crypto thing, we need to be able to take payments online. That's that's part of the part of the the benefit. Yeah, and according to them, over two point three million vendors across 182 different countries use coin payments. So check it out, see what it's like, and we'd love to hear from you if you are using it. Awesome. Wherever you join us from, it's a pleasure having you here. Yeah, why not drop into our Telegram channel and say hello? It's a FOMO.show slash Telegram. All right, so we recently stumbled across an awesome article by Gigi on the rise of the sovereign individual. Now, you sent that to me the other week. I read it and we reached out to Gigi and said, dude, can we please read this aloud on the show because it's such a good piece. He said, look, sure thing, go for it. Make sure to also talk about the people who I published it for. So we gave him a massive shout out when we did the last episode with Alex Fetsky, who we interviewed, um, mentioning Gigi's 21 Lessons piece, which you can find at 21lessons.com. And that was instrumental in Alex's Bitcoin journey. And it's free to read. And there's an audiobook version as well. Mm, and the audiobook version is really cool. I'm kind of making my way through that myself. Um, but this time he's written a great piece for Bull Bitcoin Blog. Uh, and Bull Bitcoin are, in their own words, the Canadian alternative to Coinbase and BitPay. And this piece is called The Rise of the Sovereign Individual. And we thought, look, we love it so much. Why not just do a little bit of a, an audio narration here um, by, uh, by, the, by the voices of the FOMO show of this article? And then we'll have a little bit of a discussion afterwards because it just it was so profound for both of us that we thought – we didn't really just want to summarize it. We wanted to actually read it and kind of get it out there. So let's take it away. Thank you so much for writing this, Gigi. It's awesome. Not too long ago, the internet was a fringe phenomenon. Very few people saw the benefits of a global communications network. Even fewer people had the vision and the foresight to see what it might enable. Now today, most people take the internet for granted. It's simply expected to be there, like running water in your home. Even before the internet became ubiquitous, technologists and visionaries realised the potential of this transformative technology. They realised that an undiscriminating network combined with the magical power of public key cryptography rips the power balance in the individual's favour. Now, eavesdropping resistant communication, which can't be stopped, is poison to authoritarian regimes, which, after all, are in the business of suppressing and controlling the flow of information. If people are still able to communicate and assemble, they can rise up and speak truth to power. We saw the liberating potential of communications technology during the Arab Spring, and we continue to see individuals rise up and fight authoritarian rule today. Now, what the cypherpunks understood 30 years ago is starting to play out right before our eyes. The tools of our information age have the potential to empower individuals like never before. Now, Gigi inserts a video into this post. We stuck it into our Telegram channel. We'll stick the link into the show notes as well. It's one take of a night of a protest in Hong Kong. The cameraman's edited it and set it to the music by Louis Armstrong of What a Wonderful World. And it's poetic. Mm. Click the link in the show notes. 
Awesome. So the next bit of the article is titled The Freedom to Transact. And it says, as I'm writing these lines, hundreds of thousands of people are marching in the streets of Hong Kong, protesting against an extradition bill proposed by the government. As always, protests like these shine a light on the current power balance between individuals and the powers that be. Unfortunately, the current system of surveillance, automated facial recognition and cashless transfers enables not only a single point of failure, but also a single point of control in times of unrest. If the government doesn't like your opinion or or the fact that you are part of a peaceful protest, a simple truth becomes apparent. Your freedom of assembly was an illusion, as was your freedom to transact freely. In a free society, these freedoms should be guaranteed. How? But we've seen in the past, information technology and strong cryptography, if used carefully, guarantee the right to speak freely. After all, no amount of violence will ever solve a math problem. In the same vein, an information technology exists today which guarantees the right to transact freely. Bitcoin. It's easy to forget that permissionless and censorship-resistant are more than mere buzzwords. Under difficult circumstances, these words become a matter of life and death. The Hong Kong protests make evident once again what privacy advocates have been preaching for years, even decades. If censorship and surveillance are built into the system, it will be used and abused by those who are in charge. And if you don't have the option to detach from your identity, free speech, free thought and free action are impossible. What's true for WeChat, Facebook and Google is also true for our current payment rails and the financial institutions of this world. No matter how noble the motivation of building central controls into communications or financial systems, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, as the saying goes. He puts a quote in, Decentralised and private payments are a necessary innovation for a digital future where we retain our civil liberties and personal freedoms. That's Alex Gladstein. Strong cryptography allows us to reclaim our right to private conversations in the digital age, thanks to -to end-to-end encryption. The same cryptography allows us to reclaim our right to transact freely in a digital world, thanks to digital signatures, cryptographic hashes, and the global machine of truth and freedom, which is Bitcoin. Next section is the freedom to remain private. In today's digital world, as Hong Kong protesters know, finding out who went to which protest is as easy as retrieving data from a database. Whether it's from people's bank accounts, WeChat, Alipay, or other virtual profiles, the convenience of the status quo inevitably leads to a system of total surveillance, and thus total control. Now, the solution to this conundrum is enabling privacy by default, which has been the default setting for thousands of years. Neither the internet nor Bitcoin is perfect in this regards, which is why constant vigilance and the development of privacy-enhancing technology are a necessity. In the last couple of years, efforts to encrypt all internet traffic by default have been made. In the next couple of years, we hope to see continued efforts being made to make every Bitcoin transaction even more private than they are now, which, the author adds, is one of the reasons why Bill Bitcoin, this Canadian Bitcoin company, uses Wasabi's coin join by default. As evidenced by the long lines at Hong Kong's train ticketing machines, surveillance renders all other freedoms useless. Now, they enter a picture here of a bunch of protesters with their masks on, queuing up to use their regular 
credit cards or bank cards at the train stations. So whoever has the back end of that knows exactly who is paying to go and take train tickets to go and go to these protests. Mm, mm, it's just a really interesting juxtaposition, isn't it? All the people who are masked and you see them later out in the streets and they're all just queued up buying from these ticket stations. Um, but he, he goes on to say, the current situation in Hong Kong paints a vivid picture of the disastrous side effects of a cashless society. Without a way to transact privately and anonymously, people are enslaved to the masters of finance. And no amount of going digitally dark will allow you to avoid this slavery. Now, arguably, things are bound to go from bad to worse. The financial elite, which controls m- the most important good of our society, money itself, is playing God with our shared macroeconomic reality. In the last couple of decades, a concerted effort was made to attack another financial freedom, the freedom to save. And the next heading is the freedom to save. And he says, even without people marching in the streets, it's apparent to most that these are chaotic times. Currencies are not holding their value. A recession is looming. The most powerful men in the world are openly fighting currency wars and are bragging about it on Twitter. All while the endless printing of money continues and politicians slash bankers are spewing propaganda to normalise negative interest rates. Now, people talk about quantitative easing, QE, and negative interest rate policies, NERPs, as if there were anything other than pure insanity. Now, the first, quantitative easing, is simply printing massive amounts of money. The second, negative interest rate policies, is paying borrowers and stealing from savers. Gone are the days where you just get interest from your money in the bank. In the world of NIRPs, you have to pay the bank to hold your money. In the same vein, gone are the days where you have to pay back your loan plus a little extra to reimburse your lender for taking on the risk. In the world of NIRPs, you are getting paid to take out the loan. Need some money? No worries. We're giving you the money and we're paying you a little extra for enjoying the privilege of giving you a loan. You know, as should be apparent for every child which is offered the choice between two marshmallows today or one marshmallow tomorrow, the current financial world is defying common sense. I repeat, pure insanity. More and more people realise that this insanity has to stop and decide to exit a system in which a global negative yielding debt of $15 trillion is the new normal. The broken financial system, with its negative interest rates and modern monetary policies, are, in part, responsible for the rise of sovereign individuals all over the world. Now, people begin to realise the stupidity of this game. Putting pressure on this broken system by making a run on banks is one form of peaceful protest. Storing your value in an asset which cannot be inflated, cannot be confiscated and cannot be subject to the whim of politicians and bankers is another one. And there's a quote here from Matt O'Dell. It says, Sats or Satoshis, which are the smallest unit of Bitcoin, are my safe haven. Bitcoin is quickly becoming a safe haven asset, especially for people who don't have easy access to more, quote-unquote, stable currencies than their own. On a long enough timescale, Bitcoin offers stability in a world of global instability. It guarantees the right to save. Nobody will be able to take away your sats. You have to give them away willingly. Mm. So the next heading is building towards a sovereign future. 
and says that people are fed up with the tyranny of the banks, the tyranny of the state, the tyranny of Facebook, WeChat, Sina Weibo, and everything else which is too big to fail. It's our collective responsibility to build a better future, a future where the freedom to transact, the freedom to remain private, and the freedom to save your wealth over time are guaranteed. In the words of the United Nations, the same rights and freedoms people have offline must also be protected online. We want to help build a world which enables sovereign individuals to strive, a world where every individual, and every company for that matter, can use freedom-enabling technologies as they see fit without asking anyone for permission. This is one of the reasons why we, and, and uh, Gigi's talking here about um, Bull Bitcoin and the company that he's, uh, he's involved in, have released CypherNode, a suite of software and utilities to operate enterprise-grade Bitcoin solutions as free software. It's a really cool diagram that they've put in there of what that entails. But they say, while it's debatable whether Bitcoin can literally solve every problem of the world, it's undoubtedly a big piece of the puzzle. Technologies which empower the individual are more important than ever before. Technologies which enable you to remain private, speak and transact freely, or tip the balance of power towards the individual in another way will be invaluable to the world we're heading towards. China is giving us a taste of what living in a dystopian surveillance state is like. You cross the street at the wrong place or the wrong time, and thanks to facial recognition, a fine is automatically deducted from your bank account while an algorithm adjusts your social credit score downwards. You pay for a bus ticket to take part in a peaceful process, and you're at risk of being erased from the central registry, effectively erasing your ability to live a normal life as a citizen. It might happen today, it might happen tomorrow, or at any point in the future. The surveillance state does not forget. The tools to guarantee freedom for all exist today. They're just not evenly distributed, not well understood and not widely deployed. However, with every passing day, more and more people are realising what kind of power is in their hands. And they finish by saying, we encourage you to stay strong. We encourage you to keep on building. We encourage you not to give in to tyranny. We and many people like us We'll do our best to build towards a better future. Stay safe out there and don't forget to buy Bitcoin. Perfect. So what are the big takeaways from this that you had? Yeah, so the the first one for me was obviously the freedom to transact point. And I think it's just really interesting because Gigi did a really good job at shining a light on the fact that that's actually something we need to think about now. Like he said there for thousands of years, it's never anything that we've really needed to think about, the freedom to transact, because trade has always been peer-to-peer. It's always been person to person, um, generally cash based, like generally you're exchanging some kind of physical instrument. It's only been very recently that that has been abstracted, you know, to like a digital digital unit somewhere, and mm-hmm. also then detached from a like a, a an actual physical object like gold. You know, like now it's mm-hmm. it's uh, well, who knows what it is really? We, none of us really know. Um, uh, it's like the guarantee of the government that you know your unit of exchange is worth a certain amount, um, but it basically saying that you know in a in a cashless society in the future um we may not have the freedom to transact which is such a basic human right that i don't think the um universal declaration of human right even talks about it does it wow i, I don't think so i don't think it does it's just it's such a given you know yeah that's such a good point because it's all it's all been just free mm like they may mention in there about free trade and commerce, which is essentially the same thing, like individuals being able to uh, buy and sell. I mean, we haven't had that for a while. And anyway, there's been, you know, restrictions on 
buying and selling different plants to each other and, and other things. Um, uh, and, but, you know, you saw what the prohibition was a great example of what that leads to and what that has led to in a lot of our societies. Um, yeah, and I mean, the, the, the QE one stood out for me, and I think you've probably got more to say on the QE issue than me. Dude, I think printing money should be illegal. But no, you're right about it hasn't, as far as I've read, it's not a human right to be able to spend. I mean, Article 17 of the Human Rights says that everyone has the right to own property alone as well as in association with others, and no one should be arbitrarily deprived of their property. But is money classed as property? That, mm. that may be a big debate. But mm. even then, the UN Declaration of Human Rights is just in word. It's not actually <laughs> binding by any sense. Well, we don't even I have feel. the right to own property here in Australia. Like All property is essentially owned by the Crown and your ownership on any title deed is more just like a whoever currently uh, has it on loan from the Crown until such time mm. as they want to resume mm. it. So. But you're right. Money is the power to purchase. I mean, with the restrictions on money, you can't do stuff and potentially you can't do anything. So it, it should be a basic human right. Yeah, well, I mean, you just you just got to look at what happens if you don't have the right to money. I mean, you 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 purchase food with money, clean water. You would generally purchase with money, um, or if you you know if you wanted to turn on your tap, uh, you'd probably need to connect to a utility, which would probably in this dystopian future run a check on you to see whether you're worthy of <laughs> of clean water. <laughs> uh, I mean, we laugh, but geez, mate, like you, you just you kind of extrapolate this stuff out. And you look at where it can end up, and it is, yeah, it's it's really scary. If if someone's cut off from being able to use money, um, what do you what are you left with? You're left with like a barter economy, um, away from the surveillance that you can't get away from. So it's mm. oof. the way I look at it. Money is the freedom to be private, to buy what you want, to sell what you want. La la la. Now, currently, we use dollars for that or whatever, but I don't know. I just see. It makes sense to hold Bitcoin mm. and in the absence of Bitcoin having a certain value of silver or gold coins yep. that you could transact with, assuming there's no internet or electricity or whatever, you should probably have some kind of thing of value. Now, the worst thing is if there's some kind of a nuclear explosion and I don't have access to electricity, I can't tell you if your gold's worth anything or not. Mm. It's kind mm. of weird. Yeah. And I mean, oh, and that's that's kind of the promise of Bitcoin, isn't it? That as long as one node survives somewhere, the network can be reestablished, mm. um, and 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 still no one will control that network <laughs> because it's 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 an open network. Mm. So yeah, I mean that's that that is I, I, I like the fact that that was the push he made it was essentially that so much of this begins with money, um, and and all this conversation around human rights and protections and everything else kind of stems from the fact that you need to have free access to money. And if you don't have free access to money, you don't really have anything, you know, because you can't transact. And, and our, our life is transacting. That's all we do as humans, really, mm. whether it be monetary transactions or other types of transactions. But um, so much relies on money. And, uh, yeah, Bitcoin can't be controlled. You know, it can't be shut off, can't be manipulated. Yes, um, you know, once you hold it, you hold it. And I think that's why you're seeing so many people in these uh, countries like Venezuela and countries where there's a lot of strife, they're not flocking to silver. You know, they're flocking to mm. Bitcoin because they un they're big, people are beginning to understand that holding 
a, a, some currency that no one has the right to take off you and no one has the right to control or surveil or whatever else. Just look at Ghana. They've been doing a run on banks recently. Investors can't get their savings out. Yeah. You can get your savings out when it's in Bitcoin. So we're excited about it. Gigi put together a great article and, um, yeah. Awesome. That was great. Something a bit different, but I think it was something that, we, you know, it was really worth covering. Do you know someone who might enjoy this? Please feel free to share it with them or leave us a review on iTunes or your podcast player, which helps others find the show. You can find us at FOMO.show. You can jump on our telegram at FOMO.show slash telegram. Follow us on Twitter at the underscore FOMO underscore show. And on YouTube at FOMO.show slash YouTube. That's it for us here at the FOMO Show. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like our show, feel free to subscribe in your podcast app of choice or via our YouTube channel. I'm Matt. And I'm Joe. And as always, remember, no FOMO. Live. I swear my watch beeped at the same time as you said zero. Ooh. Yeah, it definitely did. I'm 10 seconds past 20, 20, uh, geez, how do they say it in military speak when you get to 20? 20 hundred? They still say 20 hundred. Hold on. My, my, my clock says it's 1955. Yeah, I set mine five minutes fast because I'm always late. Oh, you, yeah, yeah, now that yeah. is smart, dude. Yeah. I still end up very being smart. late to things even though. <laughs> <laughs> Mm. Not a single outtake was had that day. <laughs> that's, uh, that is probably the one problem with us getting so tight with our Yeah, we our can't delivery. just screw up and just do <laughs> stupid-ass outtakes. <laughs> oh, oh mate. I, I think when we've both got a bit more time just to chill out and sit down before and after the recording, that's when the outtakes generally come. I reckon we need an in-person episode. Yeah, I think soon. we do, man. I think At some point, yeah. Though, we'll get Although, there. like, you, I mean, you listen to the – I've been pleasantly surprised, like, listening to the – recordings back um you don't notice that we're not in the same room oh you know? cool like you don't cool. really like it, it doesn't really it hasn't really had a detrimental effect on yeah yeah our episodes themselves i think we're just that's if we hadn't have been doing it in person it yeah. would have been a lot harder because i feel like we can kind of sense yeah when the other's gonna stop so that we can jump in yeah i almost see you like i can almost see you in person through your voice or the lack of your voice. <laughs> I can almost see what you're doing, you know? I'm a bit creeped out that really. Um, <laughs> the surveillance <honestly>. state. <laughs> no matter, I actually can see what you're doing. You need to put a cover on your webcam. Dude, can we stop recording so I can go for a quick pee? Yep, that's fine, Sorry, mate. Dude. No, you're right.